Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. Sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of The Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of The Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Core Business Show. I'm Tim Jacquet, your host. Uh, today, our topic is the Fast and Furious Kill 16 Youth. Our uh, special guest today is Cape Taylor. He's an expert on Latin America, Russia, Ukraine security issues, and the current author of uh, Mako. And his new book, Tex-Mex, will be out next month in November. Cape, uh, welcome to the show. Tim, good morning. Nice to uh, appreciate you having me on. Great. I guess to begin with, uh, like I just mentioned before we on the air, our audience love personal stories, uh, kind of knowing about the authors. So kind of tell us about where you're from, and how you got into writing, and then we can segue into your current that you have on the market. Yeah. Um, I'm actually from Texas. Um, I'm in Fort Worth right now, probably just next door to oh, you. okay. Right? Yeah, right down the street. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I um, I was in the military for a few years, um, went to the uh, Defense Language Institute, studied Russian, then I was in the Foreign Service, uh, studied Spanish at the um, Foreign Service Institute outside of Washington, and I had a number of overseas postings at our embassies, in, including um, in uh, Moscow and uh, Western Europe and Latin America. And then I was in private industry over in Russia and Ukraine and Central Asia for a number of years. Uh, still have a small business with a production facility over in Ukraine, as a matter of fact. And started writing a few years ago and. Uh, Wrote a couple of novels. Have, uh, as you mentioned, uh, one of my novels is called Tex-Mex, uh, which deals with the uh, the drug war and a and a fictional situation down in South Texas where the cartels try to uh, take over politically. And um, that's coming out in November, and uh, looking forward to that. And um, I, sp- I split my time now between the United States and uh, Central America, where I where I uh, bought a house a few years ago. And uh, go down there basically just to surf, though. Oh. So, you know, you're coming up. I mean, what a range of uh, when you before you decided to go in the military, did you kind of predict uh, that you're going to go to this particular course? You're going to go to the military and then later become a writer? Oh no, no. The writing, uh, the writing came uh, came much later. Um, as a matter of fact, it was uh, a friend of mine suggested that I that, that I try to write after uh, you know I heard a little bit about my life and, and thought I might have something to say. I guess whether I have something to say that's still out for the jury. But um, I've only been writing for about uh, I've only been writing for about three years. Uh, did a lot of writing, of course, in the Foreign Service, but it's completely different uh, when you're writing fiction, you know, than when you're writing intelligence reports. So, but that's particularly. You know, Go ahead. I was just going to say, so so definitely, you know, when I was when I was a, a younger man, I certainly didn't plan out anything, you know, like this is what I want to do, and then this is the next step. It was sort of a sort of a free fall, sort of just uh, intuition and just playing everything by ear. Wow. 
when you decided to write this first book um, called Mako, how did you come up with the title and how did you come up with the, the basis of the story? Well, the title is actually the, the, the main character's first name. His name is Mako Sloan, and he's sort of a, he's sort of a rogue CIA officer, not in the Sarah Palin mode, but I mean he's a he's a hard drinking <laughs> he's a hard drinking pot smoking womanizing uh, CIA officer abroad, and he's he has some pretty wild adventures. Like I said, it's kind of a parody of a spy novel. I have some world leaders, some fictionalized world leaders, doing some outrageous things and saying some outrageous things. Um, it was a lot of fun, and and you know it's not supposed to be uh, entirely serious. Although you no, know, there are a few there are a few commentaries on world affairs that maybe are worth uh you know worth taking seriously but it it was kind of a kind of a fun deal written started writing it as a joke almost and then i i sort of liked the process and got a publisher interested in it and and you know went from there wow so even to come to writing that particular story did it take a long time to write something uh like this novel i wrote, I wrote that first novel probably in about 10 months um, it's about, uh, I guess, close to 400 pages, and, and I spent a lot of time on it. Second novel I wrote uh, actually more quickly, but I've, I've uh, rewritten that probably about 10 times. Uh, I had an editor in New York that uh, had some suggestions, uh, didn't like some of the, uh, some of the political uh, ramifications of the book. He thought I was uh, overreaching. I took some of that to heart and, and uh, tried to make it a... You know, I took out some of the more outrageous things, I think, but uh, it's got some hyperbole in it. And um, but I probably spent more time rewriting that book than I actually did writing it. Is it really, you know, how it take a lot of focus to sit there and write something? Um, some people can pull a book out in five days with this great imagination. Some other people, they it takes them time. What, what type of energy or uh, what type of inspiration it takes for you to go and write something? You know, it's uh, Tex-Mex was easier for me to write probably because, um, uh, you know, being from Texas and uh, it deals with Mexico a lot, which is a country that I've, uh, you know, I feel a great deal of affinity towards. I, you know, lived there, down there for a number of years. Um, but, you know, writing is something where, you know, sometimes it flows and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, sometimes I can sit down and, and write 20 pages in a, in a very short period of time, and other times I feel like I have intellectual constipation. And you, <laughs> you sort of have to wait for it wait for it to come back. Um, I, it's difficult for me to sit down and outline, for example, the whole book. I Sometimes, you know, I'm writing in, in, in the middle of a chapter and I'll decide to go a completely different direction. So I, I think every author has its uh, has his own... Um, methodology and I've talked to authors who outline everything and other authors who don't outline a single thing so it really varies when you uh, when your writing comes to you uh, I'm sure you use life experiences people around you to write about anything that's really funny without mentioning a name that hey this is this person here I just made him into a character and just kind of enhanced it or just put the way he is because some people Naturally, are just funny the way they do things. Yeah, that's true. I, I think um, what I did, I took um, I took some real characters, some you know public figures actually, fictionalized them. Some of them I gave, I kept their own names, and I think Vladimir Putin probably is going to 
I'll have a lawsuit arriving uh, on my desk any day from him. Um, but I'd like to take uh, I like to take real life figures and and sort of maybe do a parody of them, maybe extrapolate on uh, maybe what I think they're really thinking. In Tex-Mex, I do have a I do have a, a governor who looks and talks very much like somebody that we might be familiar with. So yeah, you, you definitely take a lot of things from from real life. Uh, I have some characters that, you know, some people have accused me of basing uh, of of trying to fictionalize myself, and and I just tell them, well, that character is probably what I would like to be, but you know, never was. I'm sort of a. It, it's easy to be a writer, or you know, you hear people talking about they they use the phrase, so and so is a wannabe. Well, it's pretty easy to be a writer and make yourself into something completely different. Rewrite your rewrite yourself. That's always kind of fun. Wow. When you let's take a break real quick and we come uh, come back and kind of talk more about this book. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. You listen to the Core Business Show. You're listening to the Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Apple Capital Group in Jacksonville, Florida, is a commercial lender that specializes in asset-based loans, equipment leasing and financing, invoice financing, commercial real estate loans, and asset-based financing in the U.S. and Canada. Apple Capital Group is a direct lender that lends on their private equity investment portfolio. 90% of most loans are decided within two hours, and vendor funding within 24 hours after documents are completed with a one-page application. No slow no's, just a quick decision and a fast yes. To get more information about lending from Apple Capital Group, call 866-611-7457. That's 866-611-7457 to speak with one of our loan specialists. Or visit us right now at applecapitalgroup.com. Welcome back to The Core. Once again, here's Tim Jacquet. Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, we're talking about uh, Mako, uh, book by Kayla Taylor. Um, tell us your experience with dealing with um, uh, really security. I mean, you have you know you've dealt with Russia and Ukraine security. Kind of tell us your your background and how that played a part of you uh, to your second book, Techmex. Yeah. Um... You know, I'm, uh, a few former colleagues and I formed a little um, organization, I guess you could call it. We call it Spy Masters Literary Guild. We have a website, spymastersguild.com. And mm -hmm. we, I, I guess the reason that we, we started that was because we had, we had all read a lot of um, spy novels or espionage novels that we thought were a little bit lame. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, John Le Carre because his stuff, his stuff is fantastic, but... Some of the there are espionage thriller writers out there who write about espionage, write about international intrigue, and they have absolutely no knowledge of it. They have no personal experience with it, and and it just reads like I don't know. It, it's sort of like it, it reads like a vampire novel with uh, with some espionage thrown in. I mean, just just completely, completely off the wall, completely um, you know, unlikely. So we. We think that in the books that we've written, that even if the plot is a little bit off the wall, even if we're, you know, even if we're talking about a parody, that there's actually a feeling of reality in there, based on our own experiences. 
Um, I mean, I don't think that some of the writers out there um, who are writing about espionage have ever handled an agent overseas or have ever, um, uh, you know, been in Moscow under KGB surveillance or anything like that during the Cold War. So we, we thought that that would add a certain degree of credibility to our, our work. And uh, one of my colleagues, his name is Michael Davidson, has written a number of novels. They're not all out yet, but uh, his first novel was called Harry's Rules. And he bases his uh, novel on uh, sort of an interesting concept that in Russia right now you have uh, a triumvirate of power uh, shared between organized crime, business, and the government that it's very, very difficult to separate those things. So, uh, you know, we do take our own experience into account and, and, and put it into the book. And in Tex-Mex, I do the same thing uh, with, the, with the drug traffickers, with the cartels. Uh, you know, I worked a little bit in that area down in Mexico. And I always like to add, you know, a certain amount of fantasy also, a little political fantasy to that to spice it up a little bit. But, you know, at the core of it, there's, there's some very, very basic truths that we've had direct experience with. Okay. Um, with that particular experience itself, um, is it real, you know, everybody can't visualize. I mean, if an author writes something, they're, they do their research with people and they write their own experience, uh, taking their own experience and trying to write a normal novel. However, when you actually go into those type of situations, kind of tell us behind the scenes what those type of situations are. Uh, the real risk and danger uh, by being in these different countries that, of course, you have the U.S. behind you uh, if you work for them, but also you have you don't have them because if not at with you at that particular time when something happens, you, you know, kind of tell us in one sense what is that really like because you do have the government behind you. However, if you not you off guard, but it's a timing issue. If you by yourself and something happens, you're on your own. Yeah, Tim, you actually bring up a very good point that you do have the U.S. government behind you. And in most cases, that's going to that's gonna pull you, you know, pull you out of the fire and it, it, if things go south. Now, you know, as we saw in Benghazi recently uh, with the murder of the four American diplomats, sometimes that doesn't really help you. But if we go back to the Cold War, for example, and in one sentence I'll just say this, that your main responsibility and the main risk that you run is not that you are going, to, anything bad is going to happen to you, but something bad is going to happen to that guy that you're meeting, that guy that's giving you information. He's risking his life, and you are risking his life in the way that you handle him. So if you are not careful and he gets caught, the result is he dies. So that's the ultimate uh, responsibility that you have when you're out there. Wow. You know, why would a person take the risk of on the the person that is going to give you the information? He knows he has a lot at stake. Um, why would they give you this type of information to escape their situation or can they escape the situation? Um, well, well, the motivations can be you know they're they're wide wide range of motivations, varying ranging from the most base, the most uh, uh, you know, greedy, uh, somebody might just want money, maybe they want, uh, I don't know, out of their marriage, uh, maybe they're they're drinking too much, maybe they have problems at work, 
they want revenge, and that could range all the way up to the guy who who does it for ideological reasons. Maybe he's you know especially in the old Soviet Union, you know maybe he's against the regime. He he resents the the oppression that he's experienced. Maybe his relatives uh, uh, went to prison or died in the gulag. Uh, you know it, it can be any number of things in that regard. So you know it really really varies. There's not one type of motivation that you can point to really. Um, you know, I've seen pretty much of, you know, all of those in play. Okay. Let's kind of focus back on the, the uh, Fast and Furious uh, Kill 16 Youth. Uh, what was the original goal for the Fast and Furious operation? Well, that was an operation run by the ATF in Arizona, and, um, you know, we've got a lot of uh, guns going across the border into Mexico and, um, you know, arming the uh, the drug cartels down there. And the original thinking was that uh, the U.S. government or the ATF wanted to uh, not just catch the guys that were buying one or two weapons and 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 selling them to uh, to the drug traffickers illegally, but they wanted to go a little bit higher up that chain of command and find the people who were who were commissioning these these large purchases. Uh, the only problem was uh, once those weapons got into Mexico, it was very very difficult, if not impossible, to trace them. Um, so it was sort of a, a boneheaded operation to begin with, and it was complicated by the fact that the local prosecutors were, did not seem to be interested in, in issuing indictments to the uh, to the people who were buying those weapons. And part of that is due to the um, you know to the gun laws. They're very very liberal. You can in Arizona you can go into a store, into a gun shop, and I think there's something like 853 uh, registered gun dealers in Phoenix alone. You can go in there and buy multiple AK-47s, uh, walk out on the street and uh, give them to somebody. I mean, it's it's. There was one case, Tim, that um, a guy who was on food stamps over the course of nine months bought something like three hundred thousand dollars worth of weapons, and the local prosecutors or the federal prosecutors would not issue an indictment, even when the ATF then tried to get an indictment against him on fraud for. You know, taking government assistance and then making all these purchases in cash. So it was a very, very difficult situation, and had, and as you mentioned, it had tragic implications when uh, when um, you know those weapons were find it, found at crime scenes in Mexico, uh, and that one in particular that you mentioned, where 16 young people were slaughtered at a party in Juarez. Wow. So, what happened to this particular mission? How did it just Go away. I mean, it's just someone makes a few mistakes and then try to cover it up, or just what happened? Well, we might not have found out about it except for uh, back in, I guess it was December 2010, a U.S. Border Patrol agent, Brian Terry, was murdered um, in the line of duty uh, by um, an armed group of Mexicans that had crossed the border, Mexican nationals. And Two of the weapons, I believe it was, turned out to be from that operation. They were identified, you know, by the serial numbers from that operation, and that's when uh, that's when the news became national, and uh, and then it led to the fast, you know, to the scandal with Congress. To uh, and it became just a political football. You know, the Republicans were trying to, or, or they actually did get the Attorney General cited for contempt for refusing to turn over some documents. The president claimed executive privilege, and you saw. You know, it turned into a political circus, and I think uh, you know everybody was just interested in covering their behinds at that point. 
Um, and I think in the in the scandal that followed, I think you know we lost sight of the the overall issue that that this border that we have is porous, not only coming from Mexico into the U.S., but from the U.S. into Mexico as well. That guns are just pouring across that border, quite apart from any operation, from any single operation the government might have run. And just in that one Fast and Furious operation, though, they they were following 2,000 over 2,000 weapons that went south into Mexico. So it was a pretty, uh, it was quite a scandal. Still is. Wow. And uh, what do you think is going to happen uh, to the Attorney General? I mean, this administration continues on uh, for another term. Kind of has some type of protection uh, if he doesn't win an election, uh, current administration, then then, uh, he's pretty much on his own. Well, he's, you know, he's, uh, he's a very politicized uh, or polarizing uh, individual, I guess. The, but I guess any Democrat is for the uh, <laughs> for the op- uh, Republican opposition. I don't think anything will happen to him. Uh, okay. He, um, he, um, I, I really don't think he knew about the operation. Um, of course, he doesn't. Some, yeah, a couple of layers, you know, levels below him, they did know about it. The I guess it was the Deputy Assistant Attorney General approved or uh, or had an application for uh, to tap some phones of these straw purchasers in Arizona. He had that on his desk, so he would have read about the operation, but for some reason didn't see fit to inform the Attorney General. So I don't think the Attorney General knew about it, and, um, you know, you could criticize him for maybe creating an atmosphere where his uh, his subordinates did not, keep him informed that was a uh, i think you know the operation had some risks involved and those risks turned out to actually you know be very dire in nature so you know you can definitely i mean he's open for some criticism but i don't think anything's going to happen to him uh, you think it's just uh just really political happening in one sense well, I think it did turn into a into a, you know people were trying to make political capital out of it, which is a, which is not a good thing when you had you know a, a U.S. federal agent being being killed. As as you know, I'm not saying that he wouldn't have been killed anyway. I'm sure that the you know there are other places that the drug traffickers could have gotten their weapons, but it certainly looks very bad when when it comes from a government operation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um... Anything else you'd like to leave us with uh, regarding this particular operation that uh, you think it's long-term was going to happen? Well, one thing I'd like to mention, and it kind of it's part of this operation, but it you know it touches on the drug war itself. Is you know we just had a, a presidential debate on foreign policy, and neither the president nor Governor Romney mentioned Mexico or the drug war. I mean, Mexico is a is a neighboring country. We have six million dollars, six billion dollars of exports going into Mexico. We have a criminal insurgency down there that has cost sixty thousand lives since the year two thousand six, and not a single mention was made either of the country or of the war on drugs during those debates. And I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. It, these, these are issues that certainly we need to be paying more attention to. Wow. So, any other countries have uh, these Fast and Furious guns? Yeah, there have, there have been reports of the guns showing up in Colombia. 
Um, I, I don't know if that's been. Uh, I haven't seen any verification of that. Um, it's mostly mostly down in Mexico, but you know, two thousand weapons. That's a that's an awful lot of weapons down there, and it's just uh, that's an, that's an indication of of how many weapons are going down there because that was just one government operation, and many many more weapons go down there that are not associated with any kind of a an undercover operation, of course. Is this is this type of uh, operation is kind of a normal procedure? Uh, I'm sure we don't even hear a, even a third of all the things that goes away. Uh, all these covert operations throughout the world. I mean, maybe that was involved by, but we don't hear a lot of the things that goes on with uh, these type of operations. Um, is this really normal procedure? Um, and also, they never make these things public. So, how can you discuss when something goes wrong? You really, don't want to disclose the operation itself because it might affect some yeah, other type I, of operation. I think, yeah, I think you're right, Tim. I think um, you know we only hear about these operations if something does go bad. As far as it, whether or not it's normal procedure, I think this. Uh, you know, there were attempts to do the same type of thing during the Bush administration. And that was something, of course, that the uh, you know, that the Republicans were not talking about when they were criticizing uh, the Attorney General. But uh, the Bush administration was uh, had an operation, I think, back in 2006, where uh, not on the same scale, but they were, you know, trying to trace some guns that were going into Mexico, and uh, several hundred weapons went went across the border then. Uh, so I, I would say it was sort of an ill-conceived operation. I don't think it's uh, I, I don't think this is normal. Um, at least I hope it's not normal. So, uh, and and I I think we're only going to hear about those things when, when they do go wrong. And there are a lot of things in the intelligence uh, world that you know we don't need to hear about. That's sort of a a contradiction between uh, having a democracy and having uh, an into, uh, an effective intelligence service. You can't have too much um, uh, openness or. Or too much oversight, or else you kind of cripple your intelligence services. So you can't have uh, you can't have the both uh, the best of both worlds in that count. You have to give a little bit to uh, you know to have an effective intelligence agency. I'm, wow. I'm not referring to the ATF, but just intelligence agencies in general. Democracy okay. and intelligence agencies is sort of a, an inherent contradiction. Tell us what roughly uh, what's in the uh, uh, the premise of the new Tex-Mex book that's coming out in November. Well, Tex-Mex deals with um, a Mexican drug cartel, uh, which, in collusion with a, a very high-ranking Mexican politician and a very high-ranking U.S. politician, make a move to take political control of, of South Texas. And it's about the efforts of an old-school Texas cowboy who finds himself in the middle of everything, his Mexican wife, and uh, a group of former CIA operatives who who try to get to the bottom of it when the government fails to do so. So it's, um, you know, it's got a bit of everything. There's a love story in there. Um, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's a pretty good yarn. I think it, you know, calls attention to a number of problems without suggesting any, any uh, you know, solutions uh, that, that are kind of, any guaranteed solutions, that is, because these are, Difficult, difficult problems, and they're, they're problems that uh, that need more attention. And I think 
you know, I hope that's what the book does is maybe, you know, create some some more discussion on some of these uh, very, very serious security issues that we face on, the, on our southern border with Mexico. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, anything else you'd like to leave us with? Is there a website uh, where you can get your current book? Yeah, Tim, I have a, a website at Clabe, C-L-A-B-E, Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. The book, again, doesn't come out until November, but Mako is available at you know Amazon.com, at Barnes & Noble. And, um, and then there's Spy Masters Guild, where you can also take a look at the books of uh, my two other colleagues, Robert Morris and Michael Davidson. Um, their books are, uh, Robert Morris was a CI officer in Moscow in the early 80s, and he handled some of the most sensitive cases that our country ran against the Soviet Union. And uh, he's able to talk about that now. And Michael was a CIA officer for 30 years. So you can imagine he's got some stories to tell as well. Well, perfect. Well, really appreciate you joining the program. And your website again is? ClaveTaylor.com. Perfect. Thank you, Cave. I really appreciate you coming on, the, coming on the show. Tim, thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's another production of the Core Business Show. Thank you all for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For more information about equipment financing and asset-based loans, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. Or call us at 866-611-7457. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to the Core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. And thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet.